0: Have more credibility with the white folks like let's say i would show up and i would try to explain it to them from my place of blackness let's say i'm not sure that i'll be able to put myself at their level but you know how they think because they're you you know in a way right yeah Or the old you if anything
1: it, it, it's true and you could say what i can say to white people mm-hmm. you'd be escorted out of the room <laughs> especially if you said it with a passion that i say it you'd be the angry black woman mm-hmm. who we need to get out of the room that we, and, and you. And hey, Linda Marie. <laughs> Hello.
0: I'm so excited to have you on the Break Time with Patty
1: show. Uh, this is long overdue. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be here. Very excited to be talking to you.
0: Oh, Thank you. <laughs> Where do I begin? The first time... I met Linda Marie Miller in person, was at the World Championship of Public Speaking in Nashville, Tennessee, this last August, 2022. But it was not the the first time that I laid my eyes on her, but more on that later. (laughs) Who is Linda Marie Miller? Number one, she is a master communicator and a coach. She is the first runner up in the 2020 World Championship of Public Speaking in other words, she was known as the second best speaker in the world <laughs> that year. She is an inspirational public speaker, a keynote speaker, a certified experiential trainer, and International Coaching Federation certified ontological coach. My goodness, I'm <laughs> killing you for all those words this morning. Yes. Number two, she is a business leader. She uh, is a thought leader. Uh, As the owner of uh, Empowered Living, LLC, she offers training and coaching that inspires everyone to be champions in the world. Her signature program, Champions of Change, is a visionary leadership uh, development program designed to transform participants into leaders in their lives, their organizations, their family, and their communities. And she's also a founding member of the Transformational Learning Consortium, An organization that focuses on elevating the skills of trainers, coaches, and learning and development professionals and creating community for collaborative projects. Finally, number three, she is a woman on a mission. She's a board member of Amplified Silence, LLC, a nonprofit committed to amplifying the voices of the wrongly and too longly incarcerated individuals in the United States. And Linda Marie Miller has. One purpose in this world, and that is to have people get that they matter. She believes that a world that works for everybody begins with you and me walking willing. Oh, I've talked enough. (laughs) Let's get started. Can you please share with us how it was like to be in your shoes as a little girl and a teenager, please?
1: Wow. Uh I did not have one of those picture-perfect childhoods. I had a daddy who was, I don't know, he, he, I would say disciplined, but it wasn't discipline. For him, it was sport. He enjoyed uh, beating his children. And I had a mother who had gave birth to six children by him, who had no job, who knew nothing else other than being a mother, who couldn't leave him. So I had a mother who stood by. It was, I survived my childhood, still privileged because I live in a white body, but it was not really an easy childhood. I was a band nerd. That's how I escaped from it all. I was drum major in the band. I enjoyed that. But when I graduated high school, I actually went into the convent because I wanted to be a nun. And I was there for a few months before they... Realized that I was running away from life because uh, for a lot of reasons but and then I left there and went to college to an all-girls private Catholic college but I don't have a childhood that I can look back on and say oh it was picture perfect I loved it every day was a joy Uh, and it's something that I kind of feel like I survived uh, as did my brothers and sisters so that's all I'd say about my childhood
0: wow hey thanks for sharing and uh whoo so what was your, when you went to that, to that school, then what was your major? Or like, what did you
1: study in? Religion, theology. Mm-hmm. It was an all girls private Catholic college. I wanted to study Catholic theology because I wanted to be a nun. And I studied there for a little over three years. My uh, secondary degree was bachelor of fine arts because I also was an artist. And I left there close to graduating and transferred to of all things, the University of Georgia, which is one of the number one party schools in America. (laughs) And I went from a 3.9 GPA to a 1.8 GPA in short order. So it, uh, I actually went to college for 17 years as a result of just loving learning and loving college and having the ability to go for that long because I had grandparents who were funding education for me. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I was spoiled from that perspective. I was able to go to college for 17 years and it took 17 years to graduate based on the rate I was studying. (laughs) And I ended up having a bachelor of fine arts uh, degree that I had three years on. Uh, I also studied fashion merchandising, interior design, pre-veterinary medicine of all things for a year. And I ultimately graduated with an accounting degree and passed a CPA exam uh, a month later.
0: Oh, boy. Wow. Thank you, granddaddy and grandmama. (laughs) Yeah. Good. Okay. So, wow. So, it's 17 years in university. So, when did your public speaking journey begin in all this then?
1: It it started in in failing at it, started in college, because when you go to college that long, you There are many assignments you have where you have to get, especially in the business school, where you have to get up and do case studies in front of the Mm -hmm. class, do kinds of things like that. So I had my first experience of it in, in college and I was terrible at it. And I was horrified by every time I had to do it. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, I was not confident as, as a public speaker, but as I then went into corporate America and rose in the ranks of finance and became a senior finance exec it was important to be able to speak in meetings it was important to be able to speak intelligently in front of high level people and i had to when i was in my early 30s i spoke to a group of senior treasury professionals that had been flown in from all over the country i was scared to death but back then when you spoke you used index cards you on your on the lectern you had your index cards and i had them in my pocket of my this was in the 80s. So the you know the dopey gray CPA suits with a little tie. If you had suits back then, they were very manly looking suits with a skirt instead of pants. And on my way to work to give this presentation first up on stage in front of high-level treasurers from all over the country for the subsidiaries of this company I work for. My husband was in front of me driving and his car, the battery died at a stoplight. So he waved me over and used my car and it jumped his off. And this is Houston, Texas, so it's very hot. Uh, Almost late for the presentation, jumped on the stage, reached here to get my index cards. And not only were there no index cards, there was no pocket. I was wearing my husband's suit jacket, (laughs) which was pinstriped, which was very similar back in the day of dopey gray women's business suits in the 80s, very much like his. And I had no index cards. And I'm standing on a stage in front of, I don't know, probably 80 or 90 treasurers from our subsidiaries, high level finance people. And thank heavens, I didn't panic, well, I did panic, but the overhead, that was back in the day, there was no PowerPoint, it was, you were laying down acetate overheads, and I just would look at the overhead and make up something about it, and I got through the presentation, I didn't get fired, definitely made a fool of myself, and realized after that, I would never, ever again speak from index cards, ever, and that, I think, set me up to learn how to embody whether it's a two-hour workshop or a one-hour keynote or a 10-minute, five to seven-minute speech, I never rely on anything other than embodying the entire message inside of me and being able to deliver it without any extraneous type of help because it doesn't work out. Technology doesn't always work out for me.
0: Wow, well, it's not just for you. <laughs> I think it's a global problem. Oh, my God, I would have freaked out, I have to say, with... Um... Anyway, a lot of people can relate, you know, most of the humans on earth can relate with the, this panic of uh, speaking in public. And I, would, I was so panicked about it that I would underprepare because I, I, come on, I, was, I found that it was so unpleasant getting ready that I preferred not to even prepare for it, which always guaranteed that I always messed up. So <laughs> yes, but there are tricks for this. Thank God
1: that wasn't my I have probably about 10 major speaking fails that wasn't the worst the worst was in college and I tell a story about that but that might be for another day (laughs) yeah
0: okay well maybe we can get back to it if we still have time and okay so when did you join like the first uh, was it public speaking was it a Toastmasters club that you joined for the first time
1: yeah it was I uh the gentleman in the office next to me at work he came by and said, Hey, I want to take you to lunch today. Let's go to lunch. I want to take you somewhere. I said, Oh, I love lunch. And he said, We're gonna, I want to take you to a Toastmasters meeting. I had no idea what Toastmasters was. So we walked a couple blocks down the way and walked into a Toastmaster's uh, guest event. I think it was a guest event for Toastmasters. And I was sitting there thinking, this is pretty amazing. People are seems kind of formal. And then the person running the meeting, who I know later is the Toastmaster of the Day introduce someone to do something called table topics. And that person called on me, pointed on me at me and said, would you like to join me at the lectern and do a table topic? And the, they already had said what the question was. And the question was, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I stood there and I mumbled something. I don't know what it was. It, pretty unintelligible and pretty, didn't wasn't life changing for anybody in the room, I feel pretty certain. But I got through it and I thought, that's great. That was that was pretty fun. So all the way back to the office, I was asking my friend Tony, ask me another question. Ask me another question. I could do it again. I want to do this. He said, Well, lucky for you, we have a Toastmasters Club at the company you and I work for, and I would like you to join. And I did, I joined it. And that was four months before i entered the contest in the world championship of public speaking in 2020 so i'd only been a toastmaster for four months when i someone said oh there's this contest and i thought it was just at club level so i've learned all along the way oh there's another level oh there's another level and then some point they said look if you win enough they're going to pay for you to go to paris and then i was all in i thought i want to go to paris <laughs> And, uh, and then of course COVID hit and there was no Paris. And, but uh, that's how I started in Toastmasters. It was just a f- literally a few months before I entered into the international speech contest that culminates in the world championship of mm-hmm. public speaking. And I was shocked more than anybody else that I kept winning at every level. I couldn't have been more shocked.
0: Well, if anybody watches your speeches, they'll understand why uh, I would understand why you, would, you kept winning. But that brings me to my next question actually let's talk about that 2020 final speech pretending not to know okay that turned you into the second best speaker in the world that year it was so intense when you showed up there with that uh i won't give any spoilers please i encourage you to go watch it at home this speech is is really uh it's a game changer in my opinion but when you showed up i was like it completely took me by surprise okay because it wasn't un- unpredictable, so I'd like to ask you: Why did you feel compelled to lend your voice to cause that clearly does not affect you? Actually,
1: yeah, yeah. So the the exp- and this is, I think, what sets me apart as a speaker, is because I am an experiential trainer. When I speak, it isn't to teach; it isn't to impart knowledge. When I speak, my intention is always to create an experience in the room, in the audience, in their hearts, in their minds. And I have, as an experiential trainer, I have some skills that I've learned along the way that create that ability. It's tools in my toolbox that a lot of people don't have because they are not experiential speakers. They are more speaking speakers. When I was going to be getting on a plane and going to Paris before COVID, that is not a speech that came to mind for me, right? Because I was going to be in Paris on a big stage, might have been something else. When I, when it went virtual and I said to myself, there in Paris, there might have been a couple thousand people in the room. But since this now is going to be on this stage, and it was free, people didn't have to pay to listen, maybe there will be a bigger audience. Am I going to waste a bigger audience with some mamby-pamby message to the world? And And I say this to people, if you were asked to deliver a message to the world, the entire world is watching and listening. What are you going to say? Are you going to waste it on talking about some nonsense? Are you going to waste it trying to win a trophy? You have the world listening. And at that point, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe 4,000 people will be watching. I found out later that over 53,000 people were watching when it streamed. And I knew it to be true because I think half of them started searching for me to tell me things to say things, what opened up for them, what resonated with them. So for me, because my life's purpose literally is, whether I was in corporate America as a senior financial exec, is only to have people get that they matter. That's it. It isn't to be rich because I've been a millionaire twice in my life. But the universe has already also ditched me up a severely handicapped child that was very, very expensive. The universe dished me up the love of my life who needed a lung transplant after I met him, $1.8 million for a lung transplant. The universe will take and give this thing called cash. If you bank on leaving a legacy in the world of cash, You are not leaving the greatest legacy you can leave in the world. But if your mission in life, if your purpose in life is to have people get that they matter. And as a result of them getting that they matter, they step into a life of no regrets. That's a legacy that lives on long past. Like any money you could leave behind. I came to that realization about 12 years ago when my life switched to being about having people get that they matter so when i had the opportunity by and i i honestly think this because the message that i was delivering i believe the universe wanted that message delivered i was just simply the vehicle to have it happen so it, i think of some kind of intervention occurred in order for it to be heard in order for it to land second place which definitely gave it a bigger platform to be heard because I still have people reach out to me. Not a month goes by when someone says, hey, I found this speech called pretending not to know on YouTube and I wanna talk to you about it. It happens all the time. And it's only because something happened through the world. And, And I sometimes I think COVID happened as a result just so that speech could be delivered in the way that it was delivered to the audience it was delivered for, because it has been life-changing for a lot of people. So that's why it wasn't, uh, there's no way in heck I thought I would ever be on, have a chance at winning first, second, or third place. And if you don't care about winning, which I knew I wouldn't win, why not? And this, when I coach people about speaking, especially contestants, I say, if you forget about the trophy, if you simply be your message for the world, Number one, it will profoundly change the world. And secondly, you probably have a better shot at getting a trophy if you will speak in that way. But we have so many people that and we see them prepared speeches, being, you know, forgive my, forgive my saying this, verbally vomited on people without emotion or context or a sense of even believing what they're saying behind it, that... There's way too much of that in the world. I don't want to waste one minute wasting people's time talking about nonsense. So I don't talk about nonsense when I talk about things. And it happened again this year at the when I made it to the final stage. Uh, it was coming on the heels of a business meeting for that organization that if I didn't know it before that business meeting, I knew afterwards that there's no way I'm going to even place in the top three, given this speech. And I had to ask myself, do I care about the trophy or do I care about delivering this message on this day to this audience? Mm-hmm. And I care about the message more. Long answer, but that's my mm-hmm. answer to that.
0: Oh, well, that's a good answer. You're answering two of my questions in, <laughs> in a one shot. So yeah, so that's that other speech. And I was there in person to, to watch it. And wow, uh, it was called From the in- Inside Out. And also please go watch that one too. <laughs> It's uh, another message that she was clearly very passionate about. And just to, how can I say to highlight this? She was a top eight best speaker in the world. Okay. So she was the number two that in, 20, um, 20, in 2021. No, no, the 2020. 2021. No,
1: 2020. 2021, I was winning until uh, I, I won and I was getting ready to compete at division, which is area, you know, club area division. But my husband, uh, who is post-lung transplant, he was in rejection and he was not doing well in the hospital. And on the night of that contest, he's telling me to leave the hospital and go home and get in front of the camera. And I decided to drop out of the contest because it, I wanted to be by his side. So I did not compete. Okay. I did not pe- compete past that on, mm-hmm. uh, in on Bass Division in 2021. Okay. So I came back this year to yeah. uh, compete. But I think... I'm pretty sure about this. I'm the only person who has made it to the final stage every time they've competed. Mm -hmm. So I think that could be my claim to fame is uh, I'll never win, but I'll, my intention is to always get to the final stage, Mm -hmm. not for the prestige of being a finalist, Mm -hmm. but because you have the greatest number of people listening and watching when you deliver a speech. So.
0: Yes, it's a huge platform. Definitely. Ah, Okay, so um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about that message, uh, the from the inside out? I yeah. know that you like for them to watch to to watch it.
1: Yeah, I'm you happy. and you can see it on my channel. I think because because I the top three, you can see the top three winners, all their speeches on mm-hmm. YouTube easily. Uh, mine, you'd have to go to my channel. Yes, I will add you
0: link. Good. I will uh, definitely yeah. add you a link. Yes. Yeah,
1: it's mm-hmm. it's called from the inside out, mm-hmm. and it I talked about the journey of because I've always. I've always uh, prided myself in not caring about who people are on the outside, what they look like, mm-hmm. where they come from. Just, I only care about who someone is on the inside. And then uh, my son-in-law of 12 years came out as transgender mm-hmm. and announced that he would be transitioning into a woman. And I thought I was all cooked and baked, and, mm-hmm. and I wasn't and it it impacted me, and I had a very, internally, a very strong reaction to it. My One of my best friends is queer, mm-hmm. and I was shocked by my own reaction, mm-hmm. but I thought, no, this is my family. This is the father of my three grandchildren. This is what happens to them, like how selfish mm-hmm. of this human being to only care about and he was 42 years old when he made this decision. And the truth is that I had always known it from the first moment I laid eyes on him and met him before he married my stepdaughter. After meeting him, I told my husband, that's the most beautiful boy I've ever met. Mm-hmm. He was, I used the word androgynous. Mm-hmm. He was elegant. He was, it, so it wasn't a surprise internally. I mean, when I realized it, but I I was worried about what people would say about me. I was worried this is in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I was worried about what the parents of the girls that would date my grandsons and want to meet the parents, I was worried about everything other than this human being getting to be fully expressed as who she is. And when I surrendered to the magnificence of who she was, who she'd always been, the amazing human being this was. I surrendered to I love this human being, mm-hmm. no matter what package uh, mm-hmm. she comes in. And and all of the fears I had about my grandsons, they didn't miss a beat. Mm-hmm. This was just this magnificent person that had raised them and went through hell and back to raise them on his own before he met my stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. I worried about my stepdaughter. It's her best friend. She's st- they still are best friends, even though they are going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and she just says she's only mad because now her best friend is better looking. than her. <laughs> so everybody else was OK. I had to get over myself and really realize that I love this human being from the inside out. And I thought to myself very much like uh, how many people walk by another human being that could be the love of their life. Uh, we all judge each other. And in the in America men are always judging what women look like uh, you know an, an extra ounce of fat they're not whatever it is mm-hmm. and i think who we walk by each other discounting each other because of the package we come in how many people walk right by the love of their life and discount them because of the package they come in it's not the perfect package so i i just i think it's a sad thing and so i really want to embody that loving people from the inside out and that's why i think the universe sent me that lesson so that I can really get what that really means and to be able to support someone who truly was committed to being who they were. And I, it, I had no idea the violence that is uh, put on transgender people in this country. And it's uh, it, it was a wake up call for me to be supporting someone going through that journey and the courage it takes to go through that journey, mm-hmm. both physically and emotionally and spiritually that uh, it was, you know, it made me feel I mm-hmm. that I was a weakling in my life. And that's real courage. I haven't really had to face that kind of courage in my life.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy, well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I love how you're always so direct and honest about, look, this is how I am. And this is how I thought. And you just have the whole process. And I, I'm thinking back at some conversations we had in Nashville and those things, I'm a firm believer in live and let live if everybody just lived and let people live, <laughs> the world would be a much better place. Okay. With a lot more accept- acceptance and compassion. And anyhow, like I'm just thinking back quickly when I was hiking at one point and there was like a gay couple walking towards me and uh, they were, so, they looked so in love. They were holding hands. They were really, we, we were in the forest, right? It was a beautiful setting. And they saw me coming up, and me, I smile at everybody. I don't care who you are. You're getting a smile from me if I'm, I'm going to have eye contact. I know how it is where you live in uh, North Carolina, but here in, in Montreal, Canada, like, I am very friendly. And most people, 95% will respond to me with a smile or not or a hello back. And uh, so they saw me. I had eye contact. And they just let go of their hands. like Before I even was able, it broke my heart. I go, why did they let go of each other's hands? But, but that's the world that we live in, right, where there's no... Um,
1: same thing happens in North Carolina, where I, or Charleston, South Carolina. I have a a, a phenomenal woman who worked for me. And she was married to an Italian man. She was black. and He's white. Mm-hmm. Down here, you don't do that. Walking down the street in Charleston, South Carolina, and hold hands if you're not the same color. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, the world is a a, a very in a, a place. Uh, I don't want to call it evil, but a place of discontent with otherness than mm-hmm. and. And I, I think I said it in that speech, a world that, that fears what it doesn't understand. And fear leads to hate of mm-hmm. what people don't understand. Mm-hmm. So if we just start not having sympathy for each other, but having empathy with each other, like you are me and I am you, mm-hmm. and there is no differentiation between us, then I think we can come to a place where we can resolve a lot of the world's issues. Yes. So
0: we were having a discussion about the whole you know the whole black lives matters and then you have other people saying well white lives matter too and all the lives matters and and we had a discussion that was my daughter myself and you were having this kind of discussion and you were telling anyway so you help some people navigate through this whole concept can you like tell us a little bit more about this like what
1: yeah. one... the program is called whites walking willing and so on this side of my coffee mug it says walking willing which is a reminder to me that I am walking willing every day. And on this side, it's a suggestion to whoever's on the other end to mm-hmm. walk willing. Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as that. And so the program Whites Walking Willing is I work with white affinity groups of people to have them step out of whiteness and into their humanity. Because whiteness is not humane and if you are in this, and I only speak for the U.S., in the United States, if you're socialized as white, there's a high likelihood you've been raised with racist ideology. Mm -hmm. It's in the air you breathe. It's in the water you drink. It's in every TV show. It's on every newscast show. It's at the movies. It's in the clothing. And when I say whiteness, uh, it's past race. Whiteness is I can't have a pair of yoga pants from Walmart. I have to have a pair of Lululemon yoga pants. I have to have, I can't buy a $10 handbag from Target. I have to have a Prada bag to have, to be a, a higher level on the hierarchy of what whiteness values, right? And the, so there is this hierarchy, even within whiteness, and, and I think of it as a bullseye, the most white right in the middle, everything else measured out from that. And that's education. It's what you look like, it's your age. And I've always been, because of my privilege, right in the middle. I've only moved a little bit out of the bullseye because I'm 65 now. And you don't get to be 65 and be on the highest hierarchy. And I'm also a woman, right? So white, male, heterosexual, with money, good job, very educated. All of the things that put you right smack dab in the middle. I've never been right in the middle, but very close. That's an inhumane place to live because there is a thing about whiteness that white people majority of white people are totally unaware of and that is the prices you're paying for being white and secondly the prices every other human being is paying for you showing up as whiteness and when i say that i say one of the prices white people pay is there is no community in whiteness there's this thing called clubhouse that I joined a couple years ago. It's the first time I've ever had the experience to walk, to be in a space. This is an audio only app. I don't know if people are familiar with it, where I could walk into an all black space and listen. And I'm just down in the audience, just a nobody, nobody paying attention to me. I was blown away at the sense of community that exist among absolute strangers to each other that are non-white. Referring to each other, men referring to women as queens, women referring to uh, men as brothers, women referring to other women as sisters, don't even know each other. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I want that community. And I actually asked a group of white people that I was working with at the time, what if we just started referring to ourselves as sister or brother or queen or king? They were horrified. They couldn't even conceive of that kind of community. I said, well, what if we could create a deeper sense of community? It doesn't exist in white spaces. All white spaces are competitive. All white spaces are looking with a side eye to another human being to, and it's, it's ingrained in us from the time we're young. Get the trophy, get the ribbon in the sporting thing, write the better report, get the better grades, go to the better school. Everything is about get the next promotion. Everything is sets up whiteness to not create community because for you to hold someone else up takes away from what you might have. We call it the great American dream. The great American dream isn't about being the most humane you can to your neighbor. The greatest American dream is having it all, having it all. And we even call ourselves, this is a, when you think about it, this is a pretty sick word. We call ourselves consumers. They market to the consumer in you, just the word we consume, and we consume, and we consume, and we consume. And the whiteness of consuming is even destroying the planet we live on. Mm-hmm. Because for some reason, we're okay with the word consuming. We are, I'm a consumer, and you need to market to the consumer in me. That's an inhumane way of identifying yourself. And it's a privileged way of identifying yourself. And it is a, it's an inhumane way of identifying yourself. And as you continue to consume and not give back to the world because the world owes us because we're living the great American dream, people are suffering and people are paying a price for it. And it's the majority of the people that are paying a price for it are those that you're walking by every day that aren't in your lane because they're not white. And so many white people, and, and when it comes to, uh, when I speak about doing work of anti-racism, white people have it as a binary issue. I'm, I'm not in the KKK, I've never mm-hmm. used the N-word, and I don't use racial slurs or tell jokes, so I'm a good white person. And over here is the bad white people, and that's not me. So I'm over here, so there's like nothing for me to do except sit on my couch and be mad when I see a black man being murdered on TV a hundred times over and over again in the news, because that wasn't me. I didn't do that. I'm mm-hmm. the good white person. Mm-hmm. But what I impart to white people is, it's the good white people over here sitting on your couches in silence, living your very white life in your very white lane that allow this to can happen over here. And these people over here are loud and very vocal the good white people need to stand up and get vocal and the first step in doing that is raise is realizing and recognizing the racist in you and because I've never met a white person that was socialized as white in the United States that can't identify with racist ideology not because they asked for it but because it's the way we were raised it is and and even and I say subconsciously through the history we weren't taught through the movies we did watch uh, And one of them that that's always a profound memory for me is right I was a child of the early 70s I mean born in the 50s but really being socialized as an, a young adult as a teenager in the 70s early 70s and right after all the civil rights gains in the 60s here in this country come out one of the top movies in the early 70s was Planet of the Apes and I look back on that and I know that was a dog whistle warning Two whites in this country, mm. and when we, when you really, as a white person, when you join a group of other whites that are walking, willing, and really learning the white history of this country, it is so evident that it has been fashioned in a way to have you, have you be privileged and receive benefit for staying silent about how you were raised, uh, and when I started speaking out and I was no longer loyal to, or blind to, and silent about what I was seeing in the world, whiteness turned on me. I get death threats. I get hate mail from white people. You still do? When I speak. Yeah, I do. Not a month goes by where I don't get, uh, when, and, and when I say white people, I mean, I'm gonna say whiteness, because even people that are not white born in the US, when i started test driving the speech i gave 2 months ago for finals i i stopped after i got two emails warning me not to deliver that speech in the finals if i made it that far and and they were toastmasters they were toastmasters so and it was it was a it was a, a strong suggestion coming from love but it was it was uh, it was a warning not to do that so when people this is what i say to what and this is something this is whiteness too white people love to be right white people don't like to be embarrassed white people don't want to find themselves helping in a karen situation and that's a term in the us they don't want to interrupt a karen spewing some racist nonsense for fear they might end up on the video with the karen on youtube Mm. and they're so when we can step out of whiteness and just step into our humanity that says I can control what happens in front of me. And if I see racism happening in front of me, I will not stand for it. And, and one thing when I think about, and for a lot of white people in this country, George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd was a huge pivot for them because they got up off the couch and they went out and marched and carried a Black Lives Matter sign, but they're sitting on their couch again. And I asked myself how many murders do white people need to see before they actually will stay in action and stay involved and step out of their whiteness and into you know what it means to be a true anti-racist in in this country and one of the things I think back on when I watch the George Floyd murder and I think about the people on the curb that stood Mm. with their cameras and I think about one woman in particular who was a firefighter. And she came across the scene and she was a white woman. And she came upon the scene and she pushed in a little bit. And she was told to get on the curb. If you're a firefighter, you know you shouldn't be getting involved. So she stood on the curb. And I asked myself, I'm gonna cry, have I been that woman? Could I not have found the courage to say, I know what's happening here and they are not going to shoot a white woman. I am going to step off the curb and I am going to be wrestled to the ground. I am going to interrupt because this will not stand in front of me. Knowing as a white woman with cameras rolling. White men were not going to shoot her. And had she been wrestled to the ground. It might have detracted from the murder that was taking place on the pavement. And I ask myself, can I be brave enough to stand up, step in, and speak up? And I invite other white people to do that because it lives depend on us doing it. And when when someone I, I I'm on a I'm on a roll here, when people at work say, I don't speak up about racism when I see it at work because I'll handle it, you know, even if it's a micro, I don't believe in the Trump microaggression, but when I see something happen, I'll talk to someone on the side because I don't want to not, I don't want to lose my job. Mm -hmm. And I say to those white people, you can easily get another job. If every white person in this country said no more, it would end tomorrow. It would end tomorrow. But it's only because you're rewarded for silence and you're rewarded for staying on your couch, reading a book by Robin DiAngelo, you know, some reading a book and calling yourself all woke and now you're an anti-racist because you read a book. Mm-hmm. You are not in action unless you're in action today. Again, another long answer. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Ooh, no, you a- you're asking me these powerful questions okay. uh, that I'm so, um, and, and, when I, when I, I and I'll, I'm going to add this too that the difference when I'm a 65 year old, I'm an old white lady. And because of that seven minute speech in 2020, someone saw it and reached out to me. And as a result of that, asked me to come speak at a law school mm. to all of the professors, they're all attorneys. Mm. They have committed to being the first anti-racist law school in this country. And they asked me to come in and speak to to have that opportunity to shift a conversation and and they're having difficulty manifesting it because they're stuck on whiteness. They're stuck on uh, this word ally. Whites want to say they're allies in the fight For to become anti-racist. Well, ally in this country means I'll help you. What do you need? Mm -hmm. To which a a phenomenal, amazing black woman said to me, I don't want you to be my ally. I want to be your ally. You white people started racism. You go fix it. We'll help you. How about that? Why are you putting it on us to end something you started? Mm -hmm. We can't end it. Only white people can end it because you continue it through either through your silence or being part of the system. So uh, I thought that was profound. So I don't refer to myself as an ally or an advocate or an, an antagonist, or I just say today, I'm either doing the work of anti-racism or today I'm sitting on my couch. And some days I sit on my couch, but uh, I don't pretend on something I'm not. So, and I invite other white people to. Uh, and one thing I will say this too, if you're white and you're listening to this and you learn the actual history of this country, And no better place to do that than reading Ibram X. Kendi's stamp from the beginning, the full book. Uh, When you realize the white history of this country, it will you can't stay silent when you actually realize it. And uh, the majority of what I read in that book, I had to do dig deeping into the actual the actual speeches of the presidents because I couldn't believe what I was reading in a book. And to find out through my own research outside of that book that that book is the most accurate history of this country white history of this country and if you know the history of this country from a white perspective you will be angry that it was never taught to you and you will become an anti-racist immediately get the book buy it for all your white friends (laughs) thank you the
0: link will also be in the description below oh linda marie my goodness Thank you for, well, thank you for, 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 for your speech. So again, that's going back to pretending not to know uh, because a lot of work was put into framing it in seven minutes. So that'll give you a good idea. But also I'd like to say that because you are a white lady, you have more credibility with the white folks. Like let's say I would show up and I would try to explain it to them from my place of blackness, let's say. I'm not sure that I'll be able to put myself at their level, but you know how they think because they're you, you know, in a way, right? Yeah. Or the old you, if anything.
1: It, it's true. And you couldn't say what I can say to white people. Mm-hmm. You'd be escorted out of the room. <laughs> Especially if you said it with a passion that I say it, you'd be the angry black woman mm-hmm. who we need to get out of the room. That we And, and you, they would turn you off. To me, it's more like, uh, and the reason I work with white affinity groups is it's if there is a black person in the room, white people want to impress the one black person in the room by being the one good white person in the room. I've had white women say to me, I'm not a racist. I have biracial children. That does not make you an anti-racist. I don't care how many black men you slept with, even if you married one, you're still a white person and you still go out into the world as white. Uh, Poor white people will say, or people that that aren't financially privileged I have no privilege. I'm poor. I live in a trailer park. And I say, yeah, but you are privileged simply because your skin is white. I don't feel, well, come down into my neighborhood and knock on doors and see. I live in a neighborhood that has, it's extremely, uh, there are more, I live in a cul-de-sac. I'm the only one, we're the only white family in this cul-de-sac. But still, if a black man knocks on a door in this neighborhood on a white house on next door, which is this, you know, app, you will see out there, there's a man knocking on my door. Somebody called the police. He's not even carrying a clipboard. (laughs) as though having a clipboard knocking on someone's door means you're there for uh, something other than nefarious purposes. But, and I live in a neighborhood that's very integrated, Mm -hmm. but the white nonsense exists as a result of living in white bodies that's it and and people say to me you know you've been speaking about this now for a number of years but i'm 65 i had a whole career in corporate america that was very white never anybody at my level or above me that was not white and people and sometimes i'm interviewed by people that's black people that say well where have you been all your life and they're absolutely right i don't give myself a free pass for being in my very white lane only caring about myself but i do say this i'm not the worst thing i've ever done that's that's not the whole of me and when i when i when i look at the history and i look at there's a great book called forced into glory about the life of abraham lincoln abraham lincoln was a racist y'all a total racist he was not for being the great uh emancipator he wasn't he was forced into it but what i say is at some point he had a change of feeling or a change of heart or something and in his last years of his life he did things that made a difference in the world that changed the lives of people uh not enough and the changes were quickly taken away during the period of reconstruction but that's another conversation So yes i can and i'm not afraid to say in fact once you graduate from whites walking willing there's a deeper study group called recovering Racists, and this is because the privilege of being white is an addiction like all other addictions when put in moments of stress people will turn back to their drug of choice and for white people it's privilege And it's always there. So always having to be aware of there's a Karen living inside of every white woman. So if you become aware of it and tap into your humanity instead of that privilege, when your Karen wants to rise up in you, that's all you can do. You can't unlearn the racism that you were grown into, that you were socialized into. But it is, um, it's a constant struggle. So I don't make excuses for myself in uh, in being in white corporate America. And I can, I've told, I told myself stories for years that, um, well, I've got two handicapped children, one severely handicapped and I'm a single mother. And I, I have to have this job and I have to get the promotion and I have to be, you know, do well. And, and I, ca- I can't worry about anybody else in the world, but me and my life and my, that's a story I told myself. And it's a story I told other people to turn the other way and to, uh, accept the benefits that were ignored to me when I stayed silent, when I saw racism around me. Mm. And I had many opportunities in corporate America to stand up, step in and speak up. And I did not. Mm. And, but I don't make, I no longer make excuses for it. And I invite other people to, the more you step out of whiteness and step into your humanity and the community of what that brings you, you will never look back. It is, the the sweetness of just being able to see the world as it is and take action in it and the humanity of it, you won't care if you make another dollar. It's uh, there's something, it's mm-hmm. my new addiction, I should say. Um, so uh, don't be afraid to step out of it and don't be afraid to speak the truth about yourself and about what you see around you mm-hmm. is uh, it's the real juicy juice of life. I'll say that. Amen to that. (laughs) And
0: okay, I'm just going to very quickly before I go to my next question. I just wanted to, I don't want to make this about um, like religion or anything at all, but my entire life, like I felt like, although I've been pretty Privilege, okay, it's not white privilege, but I've been privileged as a black person. Okay. I mean, I my parents were hard-working immigrants, they work hard, we always had food. You know, my mom was a cleaning lady, but she worked hard and she sent me to private school. I went to an all Catholic girls' school as well because my mom was saving with coupons and whatever to make sure that she can send me to, to private school. So I had it good. I had the go- the jobs, I was I had people skills, so I was able to 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 get pretty far. But I live still in a world where I still saw racism things, but I just said, ah, oh, you know what? I just waved it off. Um, I've just waved it off basically because I was fine enough, you know, and I was able to get the promotions, get the, the jobs, but I have to say that, but I did feel like, you know, humans are just despicable. You know, I was like a dog person. I love dogs, animals <laughs> or whatever, but animal, uh, humans, I was like, you know, I did not think much of them until I joined my community. I am part of this church called Iglesia Nouvelle Vie, like new life church. And not to say that Christians are like a, a, a special group or better or whatever the point is we're all humans whatever form we're in because you're mentioning the toastmasters who threaten you there's great fantastic toastmasters they're great uh, catholic christians muslims or whatever right? so there's still greatness in different circles but i just realized that oh my god not all white people are racist and in the sense that that's the kind of love you know that camaraderie that you mentioned basically with like brothers and sisters up because we're united in that love of being more like jesus or being closer to god we're still humans we're still flawed we're no better than the others but we have that thing that unites us so there's still that unity outside of you know whether you're within the whiteness or not in the whiteness but you understand there's still ways to connect in other places
1: yeah but uh, that's at a higher level and a deeper sense than all of that other external stuff and Mm -hmm. when you when Here, too, you know, I invite people that are listening to this that are white that are saying, oh, my God, why is she saying there's a racist inside of every white person? If you look at the definition of racist, the definition of racist in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is someone who has a preconceived idea about a group of people that are marginalized or minority that is not based on personal experience or logic. That's the definition. If you're raised as white in the United States, at the very least, you were raised to be afraid of black men. At the very least, through movies you saw, through uh, the 90s where the news labeled black men as super predators. Even if you didn't want to, you had an idea that would have me walking on the other side of the street if there was a black man on the other side of the street. Not that I knew him or knew that he just because it was better to be safe because I saw the news. The news isn't out there in the news isn't focusing even now on when we talk about uh, what's happening in America with, with the school. The school year just started and there's already been mass killings of students with someone coming, bringing a gun to school and killing other students. They're white boys. These are white boys. No one is saying in the world, be afraid of white teenage boys. They might kill you. And in this country, if you're going to school in the United States, you have a higher likelihood of being killed by a white boy who got a gun from his mom and dad's gun closet. But we are not on the news calling white boys super predators or be afraid of white boys. We we don't do that. But that's what happens when it comes to Uh, Even on the news now when I watch it, they are criminalizing the color of a person's skin and having them being up to no good for whatever it is. But we don't do the same thing. We generalize when a black man does something. We don't generalize when a white boy does something. A lot of white boys doing something. We should be generalizing. I'm more afraid than a white boy that's high school age than anything else right now but we don't we don't do that in this country so there are preconceived ideas that white people have been raised with even if you were raised in a diverse neighborhood that uh that is embodied in you it's in your dna and historically in your dna so why not just stop denying it and let's all just work on a solution that uh that creates something possible and in we're at a we're at a you know If you're in America, you see a huge divide right now. And we think it's over politics, but it isn't over politics. It is to turn the clock back. And I firmly believe that making America great again is turning it back, turning it back to a pre 60s time. We have uh, on October 31st, the Supreme Court is hearing two cases. The Supreme Court you can watch it. You can listen to the audio live Supreme Court hearings on October 1st on your computer, two cases. One be, that's come all the way to the Supreme Court against the University of North Carolina and the other one against Harvard University trying to dismantle and unwrap any and all affirmative action. In an effort to create equity in this country in the 60s, we started to allow universities the right to consider things other than all of the extracurricular activities that white students had the opportunity to do in high school and volunteer work because they didn't have to go to work to raise money for the family. We focused it all on these white criteria to get into universities. We allowed universities to use a different look into to in order to create some equity in this country some equity in having black students non-white students asian everything be able to get into universities it is now in the supreme court to unravel that and if the supreme court on october 31st in this hearing ultimately comes out with a ruling against Harvard and the U- University of North Carolina to be able to use whatever measures they want to allow students to, to be come to school in order to create a diverse population of students. We are turning back the clock to the 50s and the 40s and the 30s, mm-hmm. and it is likely, given the makeup of the Supreme Court, that that's a distinct possibility. And we will be turning up the racism in this country and turning back any chance of creating equity in this country in the long-term. Listen in, watch the Supreme Court on October 31st. It, it'll be a scary day, but not for because it's Halloween. It's Halloween, by the way, here. I'm, I don't know if it is in Canada. <laughs> of course it is, it is yes. Um, pretty but, much, yeah, But to me, it's unbelievable that 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 is even being heard by the Supreme Court. And there is a, there is an overwhelming sense by many people in the legal world that it's actually, the Supreme Court is going to unravel any type of affirmative action. And that's gonna push over right into corporate America too. Mm-hmm. So it's going to turn the clock back. And to me, it's frightening. It's frightening.
0: Hmm. Linda Marie, thank you so much for for sharing all of those thoughts with us and i would just like to, to quickly because i like to talk quickly about public speaking because i feel there's a lot of power yeah. there's a lot of power because now you're able to share all those things with me because you you found your voice right yeah. you're the main reason why i joined stage time university okay ah. uh like stage i knew about time. it yeah yes yeah. <laughs> i knew about it before because i did interview darren lacroix which is a fa- the founder but i'll never forget we were sitting at this italian restaurant in nashville you and i and my daughter and a few others and when you found out that i was not a member you looked at me you know like as if i was from a different galaxy and he goes what what's wrong with you (laughs) what's wrong with you
1: what the heck are you waiting for
0: (laughs) so anyhow i just joined and it was the best decision ever can you just tell us a little bit about um it since you've been a member for longer
1: yeah i've been a member for uh it's going on two years. The Mm -hmm. first year I wasn't able to be involved very much because uh, my husband was having some health issues. Mm -hmm. Stage Time University, I think it's $47 a month for Mm -hmm. their program called Presentation Mastery. It is the, for $47 a month, you have resources, look it up, uh, resources that you can't get anywhere else for $47 a month, plus four coaching sessions a month where you can sign up and be on a hot seat and be coached by the real deal. Two prior world champion of public speaking, Darren LaCroix and Mark Brown, there is something called a story dig. You have no idea. You think you have a story about something, but you have no idea the deepest message that that story can have until you've been coached by Jennifer Leone, who's from uh, Australia She's magnificent. I'm going for a story dig on November 2nd. If you join Stage Time before then, come hear me get a story dig about what it really means to get a story dig. If you really want to make a difference in the world, you can get started with Presentation Mastery for 47 bucks a month in Stage Time University there are tons of workshops that they do uh, present virtual presentations these 3-day intensives they cost more but if you're a member of stage I think you get 60% off which is a real deal and i just committed to being all in all the time with stage time and i absolutely have learned so much if you want to be a professional speaker then joining their business mastery program is what I really recommend. And I think that's $197 a month where you get all of the presentation mastery, but then you get all the business mastery, which is how to actually create big money speaking gigs for yourself. That doesn't happen by just being able to speak. So I think uh, presentation mastery is great for someone who wants to become a better public speaker, a better speaker, even if you're, uh, I think it really Should be utilized by corporate America. I've been to more conventions, banking conventions, where I've just thought bankers need to learn how to speak. Uh, I think Darren should be promoting stage time university to, you know, corporate stage Mm. time. And it, banking there's the banking world alone could oh, he God. could be busy for. So anyway, so I, I really I'm a student of stage time. I love it. I suggest it to anybody who is wanting to get a little bit better at speaking. I have a program myself called Mastery in Action, which is an 18 month certification program. It's rigorous. You don't get out of there. Uh, with a certification unless you absolutely have leveled yourself up as a speaker so uh if anybody's interested in that you can reach out to me i have a new cohort beginning in january for that but it's 18 months mm-hmm. and it's rigorous and there's hope but it's it's rigorous so yeah. it's way it's a whole different level it's experiential speaking mm. it, and it's, it's empowered speaking an entirely different level mm-hmm. and so that looks a certain way and mm-hmm. that's what i'm proficient at creating is impactful speakers
0: Yes, the link will also be all those links will be down in the description. Thank you, because I feel that the world needs tools. Like, d- d- I think Rina Romano, I did interview her as well. She was, I don't want to share her story, but she let's say she dealt with abuse in, in her life. And she wanted to learn how to frame her message. And now she's a TEDx speaker. She's like changing the world le- legislations in the US as well. And she went through time University because it could be very dangerous when you start speaking. It's great to start speaking because people think oh, I'm speaking in public. I'm public speaking. But you can cause a lot of damage if you don't frame the, your messages in a certain way. You can be very triggering. So I'm just saying sometimes there are tools, there's Toastmasters, there's places like Stage Time University.
1: Tools. You know. All these tools in your toolbox. Yeah, I can't go into a I can't go into a large group in a room full of white people and say, raise your hand if you're a racist. And How many we got here in the room? <laughs> like, I better have something after that that can relieve tension. That There are all of these tools in my toolbox, uh, whether it's neurolinguistic programming, it's a huge tool for speakers to have in their toolbox. Study NLP, mm-hmm. study rhetorical tools. You have to be able to speak in a particular way, especially if you're speaking about provocative subjects and mm-hmm. something like, um, uh, abuse uh, of women, that is something you have to, you create that kind of tension in a communication. You have to have ways to neutralize that, to feed off of that to, mm-hmm. to. And also if you want people to get up and take action, if you have a call to action about what you wanted people to do, you better be able to speak with impact. Mm-hmm. You just can't just get up and start opening your mouth and saying whatever you want. And it's a skill and it's a skill that can be learned. Nobody is born a born speaker. You see a great speaker, it's because they have worked hard at it. It takes practice. Mm -hmm. It takes becoming a master in action is what I call it.
0: Absolutely. And also one more thing I want to say is like, there's no, you were saying how, you know, bankers, they should definitely be receiving those tools. But the thing is, I don't care from my experience. I don't care what you're doing. You can be a stay at home mom. You can be a teenage kid. You can be a baker, a lawyer, a dentist. Everybody can benefit from knowing how to speak.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, you're always, in fact, you're, uh, I say life is an enrollment game. You're always enrolling somebody in something. Every time you open your mouth, mm-hmm. you might be enrolling your teenage son to clean his room. Mm-hmm. You may be enrolling your boss to give you the next promotion that's coming up eight months mm-hmm. from now. Whatever it is, whenever you open your mouth, you are committed to something and you're creating a future every time you open your mouth. It's up to you to decide what that future is that you're creating. And when you open your mouth, that's when you're creating it. So it's, it's a great idea to be an impactful speaker, no matter what your career is, even if you're a stay at home, stay at home mom.
0: Yeah. Hey, oh, Linda Marie, I can talk to you for literally the whole afternoon, <laughs> but I'll, uh, I just want to ask you, what is the next step for Linda Marie Miller, please? Well,
1: I've, <clears throat> this, uh, the world of amplified silence, this is, and it's, it's something i say. say when I started speaking out uh, in the domain of anti-racism, mm-hmm. I was in a river and the river is just flowing and taking me wherever the river has taken me and has taken me speaking in 32 countries. And it's it's taking me many places that needed to hear my message and to working with white people. There's been a little tributary that's come off of that river that I was sent down for a period of time by meeting a woman. And uh, she's my, I'm going to call her my dear friend. I'm not sure she calls me dear friend. I hope so. Her name is Susan Brown. And I met her about six months ago. And we connected because she's an artist. And when I'm not speaking, I'm also an artist. I have a Beautiful metal smithing studio. I used to teach metal smithing, mm. so I make jewelry, and I mean with a torch and a saw and setting stones. I don't mean you know stringing beads. Real you know handcrafted jewelry from scratch. She's not a jewelry artist. She is a found object artist. I or art, she can do an entire painting with nothing but beads. She's a much better artist than me. She's gotten into art shows that are huge festival art shows that I would love to get into, but I'm not good enough to get into. She's world renowned. Her art has been flown around the world. And that's how we connected. Then I started to learn more about her and about the abusive relationship that she had been in. And the reason that has come up is because my dear friend, Susan Brown, is serving life in prison. She's been in prison 19 years now. Because 20 years ago, a man that an abusive man that she'd left, she finally started moving through getting the a divorce handled. She had was in a new relationship. She was eight months pregnant in her new relationship. And her estranged husband came to her, raped her, stabbed her in the abdomen when she's eight months pregnant. And in her effort to save her life and the life of her child, she killed him, and she is serving life in prison. The inhumanity of that, (laughs) especially with what goes on now in the world, the Me Too movement, women standing up against violence, if this had happened two years ago, she wouldn't have served an hour in prison. But because this happened in the early 2000s, and because she is a Black woman, she was escorted through a system where she didn't have money for an attorney and she was put away. She's been there 19 years. She is now in an opportunity in the state of Michigan where it is looking very likely that her sentence may be commuted because of a group of attorneys that are fighting for women in abusive relationships that have been thrown away in prison for life for defending themselves. I am so ho- I'm so hopeful to the point of excitement about her being released, hopefully before the year is out, complete commutation, walk out of prison a free woman. But what it has brought me to is a realization of how many people are incarcerated simply because of the color of their skin. The inequity in this country, in America, in a country that has privatized prison systems where now states pay penalties to ev- for every bed that's not filled in a prison, which empowers court systems to fill up the prisons so the states don't have to pay the penalty fee to the private prison. We have a president who last month got on the news and proudly said he has decriminalized or, or, or stricken the record of any person with mar- you know, some mar- simple possession of marijuana. There's not one human being in this country who will be released from prison as a result of what President Biden did. Why should anyone be in prison for selling marijuana since marijuana is now legal in so many states and will ultimately be legal in every state? So let's face it, we're not, unless I kid ourselves. But the people that will continue to be harmed were the people will be the people that don't have white skin that are in federal prisons. If you are are not living in a white body, it is highly unlikely that you're going to be arrested and become a felon as a result of marijuana. But in this country, it still happens as if you are living in a non-white body. That I say that to say there's no, it's not a mistake that I met Susan Brown. It's not a mistake that we connected first as artists. It's not a mistake that she ultimately trusted me, a white woman, to share her story. And just this morning, I received in, in a package and read it all, her whole commutation, her whole trial, all of it. Um, and it brought me to my knees to think what we are doing to women in this country that are abused and blaming women for for being abused and for defending themselves. So I think that there's a whole other avenue that I'll be traveling. And like I say, I'm just in the river and I'm letting the river take me where I need to speak because I will speak. And I even realized this morning when I read all of the things from the attorney and I read about, and I actually for the first moment thought I may be able to hug this friend of mine. I may be, she may actually get out of prison that I said to myself, Maybe this is my speech for next year on the final stage. Maybe the speech is, I have a friend, and her name is Susan Brown, and introduce her to the world so that they can see what's happening to women in this country. Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You'll have to cut all that out because here I am just. Um, oh,
0: you know. Linda Marie. I, I, I came prepared. <laughs> I, I took my <laughs> Kleenex box, I knew <laughs> Every time you speak, you move me. So that's why I really hope that our audience will get to watch at least the two speeches. And the third one, Hope maybe about Susan Brown, when you'll be on the final uh, stage again. In the
1: Bahamas. In the Bahamas.
0: I'll be going. Whether I I qualify myself or not, I'm going. So just to support the speakers and definitely to to support you. And if finally someone in the audience would like to reach out to you for coaching services, trainings, workshops, free to deliver a keynote address or come speak to their white friends. (laughs) What is the best way to reach you?
1: Yeah, you can do that through my, my website, which is, it is, I have another website that's going to be coming up in the next 30 days, but in the meantime, you can go to the website that's out there, www.lindamariemiller.com. And just, there's a contact thing. Send me a message. If you, uh, you can put my email in there too, but marie at gmail if you're interested in the next cohort of whites walking willing which is a journey of this is only for white people uh, as we unfold whiteness and uh, do it in a safe caring uh, responsible way for you but we don't there's nobody to impress so you don't don't call me or contact me if you think you're a good white person and you want to come <laughs> help me help all the other non-good white people uh, because you are me and I am you and we don't we don't deal with white nonsense so we're we're just fully expressed as who we are and if and there's just there's a community in that safeness of of being able to be non-performative yeah. with each other. So we check our uh, good whiteness at the door and we just step in and start speaking. And here's what will happen if you if you are white and you want to step into a journey out of whiteness into humanity, you will start, your life will be at some point start to flash in front of you and you will remember things that you were indoctrinated into and have long since forgotten. And things will come up for you, and you will start to release what has been embodied in you—things that you don't even remember. Don't even remember, but they're still living in you and your DNA, and you pass it on through your silence. So, if you're interested in that, reach out to me. If you're interested in, if you do DEI work and you want to bring in. Uh, uh, the uh, old white lady to uh, set the tone with the white people in the room first before you step in and do your deep work. Because one thing about DEI in this country, post George Floyd, a lot of Black owned DEI companies got contracts with corporate America, but most of them were told to meet my people where they are. Most of them were told to come in and be with white people on the long arc or the journey of something, which basically is saying to uh, people come in and make my white people comfortable, which is actually an, a, a violence against a Black-owned DEI company, in my opinion. And I think that white people can um, can own uh, the work of being an anti-racist uh, immediately and step in and we can all stand and say, not one more day, it will not happen, and we can end what has been a scourge on this country, we can end it in, in 48 hours if we want to. So join me on the journey uh, out of whiteness and walk willing. All you gotta do is walk willing, reach out to me. I'd love it, even if it's just to have a conversation. And if you think I'm crazy uh, and you uh, wanna send me some hate mail, send it. We can have a conversation about it. I don't, uh, there's a great, there's a great poem uh, that I like to think of with white, with Uh, walk willing and it's uh, nobody is ruled out if you're white uh, doesn't matter if you don't even think you're if you think you're one of the good white people give me a call so we can talk because there's a poem called outwitted and it goes like this he drew a circle to cut me out a heretic rebel a thing to flout but love and i had the wit to win we drew a circle that took him in I draw a circle around all of us. No matter where you're at, you can get and uncover your humanity and join a community, join a world community that's waiting for you, and we can change the world. That's it. Thank
0: you so much. Oh, God. We'll have to continue talking later, Linda Marie. But (laughs) my main takeaways, essentially, is stop being a consumer, start being a giver. I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially that's what I got from your message. And step into your humanity. Or just contemplate, maybe you need to step out from where you are to step into humanity. And there to not stay silent. If you see things, it can make a difference. It can make the world a better place. And finally, be willing to walk willing. <laughs> so any parting words or last story before we uh, disconnect, Linda Marie?
1: No, it, it, it just this. If you want to change the world, mm-hmm. stop worrying about what you look like. In fact, if you want to change the world, tell the world what you're most afraid it will find out about you. If you do nothing other than that, you will set a motion in in the world that will change the lives of others and ultimately the world. So step in, stand up, step in and speak up.
0: Mm. Mm. Amen. <laughs> Whew, what a Thank you. I had such a good time, Linda Marie. And so insightful. I'm very moved. I'm going to be watching this interview on repeat. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for your time and at home or wherever you are. Thank you for watching. I hope that you're feeling as empowered <laughs> as I am and as inspired. To try to change the world with one little action at a time and don't hesitate to leave us comments we will i will respond to every comment that you uh, leave so please uh, feel free to leave comments and i will leave you with this the power of your voice can change the world find it and use it see you in the next video <laughs> bye